You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with the heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Welcome. Uh, Glad you're here for this lesson on uh, Christmas and art. I did something like this. I've changed it some, though, about five years ago. Maybe some of you were here when I did this on Christmas, or no, Nativity and Art, but I renamed it here to Christmas and Art. And Gil had asked me, I don't know, a month, six weeks ago, to think about something for the Advent season, and he mentioned uh, what I had done a couple of years ago about Christmas art, if I could do something like that as well. And as you know, during the Christmas season, the church, worldwide, in particular Advent, uh, really comes of age with art. All the great music, all the great celebrations, all the great decorations are there to appeal to a certain aspect of the way in which we worship God, and that is through the aesthetic appeal of it. And that's what I kind of want to talk about today and some representatives of that. But I want to say a little bit about art, and then I'll talk about Christianity and art. These are just some bullet points here about art. Uh, it is, a, 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 you know, as you know, a big field. We've been doing art, I guess, since the Cro-Magnon started painting things on the cave walls. And all kinds of art, from you know, visual art to audio art. And I, I really ought to put a hyphen there, visual and audio art, because music is obviously one of the great forms of art. In fact, I would, I, here I'm quoting a famous philosopher named Ludwig Wittgenstein. He said, all my life, I've been trying to figure out why music is so powerful to me. And that's true. The other day, I was kind of down in the mouth, and I was driving home, and Beethoven's Ninth came on, and I was lifted up. I felt great. You ever had that kind of feeling before? And I've seen poetry do that to me. I've seen architecture do that to me. There's something about art, and what it does, it represents something here. It's a visual audio representation of something very, very profound in our human experience. Now, I'm going to digress for just a second here, a little brief, and it's free philosophy lesson (laughs) on what some famous philosophers have said about art. I think perhaps one of the best explanations of art comes from Aristotle himself. And Aristotle said that art is an imitation of nature. An imitation of nature. Now, we need to understand what he means by nature. Don't think realism. Don't think that. That art is not just an imitation realistically of something that you see. What he meant by nature is the overall purpose of things. That there's an organic future-oriented purpose unfolding in all life, according to Aristotle. That's what he meant by nature, the organic destiny of things. Art imitates that in very tangible ways. And so we have sort of a sense of purpose when we look at an art object, a good, successful art object. Another very famous philosopher, a 20th century American philosopher named John Dewey, said that art is the intuition of the whole, W-H-O-L-E the whole of things. Now, we can't see the whole. We're within it. We can't stand outside the cosmos and look down and understand all that as a unity. But art has the capacity in individual ways, sound, statues, buildings, poetry, music, of representing that sense, that intuition that there's a whole to this. There's a connection to things. And we're constantly drawn to art objects because of that. They sort of arrest our attention. You ever been in the museum and you kind of walk around, you see one painting, one painting, one, and then all of a sudden one grabs you and you just sit there and look at it. You stare at it. And that's why they have 
benches in art museums. So you can sit there and contemplate on it because it gives you a sense greater than just the particular representation that it is. And so art has a way of imitating the overall purpose that we are intuitively sensing in our experiences. And it stimulates our imagination to do that. And in that sense, you know, we see through the eye, we hear through the ear, you can learn didactically through the mind and so on. But the power of the imagination also gives us some knowledge. We learn things by being able to imagine what could be the case. You know, in, you know the word imagine, imagination comes from the word images. You tie images together to see what could be the case. And that's the power of the imagination. Art has a way of teaching us something by evoking from us what we can learn through the power of imagination. Third, it reveals what is not directly depicted. I mean, if it were directly depicted, it wouldn't be art. Art has specific objects, specific sounds to it, an image to it, but it is showing something that is not directly there. We learn an indirect lesson about the purpose of things uh, through uh, these specific art objects. Uh, fourth, a few things about religious art. How do you identify religious art from a non-religious art? There's one real clear way to do that, and that's what I call the formal way, and that is the overt religious symbols. If you find a, a painting with an angel in it, it's a religious art. If you find a painting with a halo in it, it's a religious art. Or a great biblical figure, or a saint from the history of the church, typically that would be a religious art. And a lot of great religious artists have done that, but that's not exclusively the way to do religious art. It's what I call the material. That is, art has an emotional depth to it. That is, it appeals to something in us that makes us wonder about the whole or the nature of things or about God. Religious art doesn't necessarily have to have angels or even maybe a biblical figure in it or people with halos, but it can evoke within us, pull within our feelings, our emotional depths, that sense of God in creation. And some of them are really, really good at it. We're going to look at a couple of them. One in particular that doesn't have any overt religious symbols to it, but it has a powerful sort of material religious emphasis to it. I want to say a little bit about Christianity in art. Um, you know, at the heart of our faith, in fact, in the earlier service, uh, we said the Apostles' Creed. And how does it start? I believe in God the Father maker of heaven and earth. God has made the world orderly, and there's a beauty to it. In fact, the world is designed in a way, of, I mean, I'm always at, 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 at amazement and all about this, the world is designed in a way in which the glory and the mercies of God can be seen in the heavens. That's quite a claim. Think about it. Our creation is designed by God to be good. After each of the created days, God said, it is good. Then the Sabbath day, it is holy. We actually have the capacity within creation to experience the presence of God. What a remarkable thing. The fact that we live in an orderly world that, that has a beauty to it, uh, I think stimulates, inspires us to be able to capture that in certain profound ways. That the world is not chaotic. If it were just chaos, we probably couldn't do art. We probably couldn't represent anything imaginatively if the world was just chaotic. Art, in some ways, is an indication that we all sense, even though there may be moments of chaos, and, you know, despair and even horror in our lives, but that overall we sense an orderliness and a beauty within creation itself. 
I want to say a little bit about the uh, what's called the iconoclastic controversy. Maybe you've read about this. It's it's pretty interesting. Thank, thankfully, it's past us. Uh, but it's, there's, it also has a very profound, I think, lesson for us to learn. Uh, there was a particular uh, emperor named Leo who felt that icons were violating the second commandment. Thou shalt have no images before me, either of heaven or things on the earth. And that is, we're not supposed to represent anything in images because it would be borderline idolatrous to do so. Also, Islam was growing about this time, and wherever Islam went, they had that very strong teaching on uh, idolatry. And in fact, at the heart of so much why Islam rejects Christianity is that they feel that we are idolatrous people because we can give representations or images of Jesus, the Son of God. In fact, uh, one time I was in a discussion with a number of other Muslims. This one particular uh, Muslim was from Sudan, and he said... um, uh, you, you have paintings of Jesus, don't you? And I said, well, yes. He said, well, that's idolatry. In fact, if you go to a mosque, there is no human images in a mosque. No human. They can have animal images on the, on the courts, but no human images. That's why in a mosque it's all geometrical because like math would be a pure symbol of something. Well, images are a reflection of what we're not supposed to do, and that'd be idolatrous. Well, many people there in the eastern part of the Roman world, around Constantinople, felt that way. And so an emperor started this iconoclastic movement, went around destroying all these icons, and that was Leo, followed up by Constantine V, who persecuted those who still wanted to keep their icons. And this went back and forth up into the ninth century, and then finally it was resolved at some at the seventh, I think, council of, at Nicaea, I believe it was, that icons were permitted, that it was permissible for Christianity to have representations of God and of humans made in the image of God. And the main reason for that is that because God revealed God's self in the human form. We're not making this up. There really was a Jesus that the church claims was fully human and fully divine, born of a woman, lived there in Israel. This is the God that informs us of the very being of God, and so it's permissible. But it is also a great temptation sometimes uh, for us to turn what we think would be God into an idol. And so religious art has to be based upon what God has informed us about who God is. That it is based upon the revelation of God. There's always that temptation, I think, within Christianity to idolize our artistic works, that this is my power, my creativity. But religious art is a reflection of the order, the beauty of creation, but also the great revelatory acts of God. And uh, art and worship has been with us from the very beginning. In fact, as you know, it's one of the great aspects, I think, of Christian worship. Now, I do think there can be all kinds of worship. There's worship just in silence. Uh, I've been in empty rooms in which I felt very close to God. I had you know, sat for hours not saying a word with other people, and there was a, a real intimacy, I think, to be experienced in God. But art has a way of enhancing our imagination, of giving us the ability even more so to praise God. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, well, what was that hymn we sang at the beginning? Uh, uh, that first hymn that we sang this morning. Uh, it was an Isaac Watt hymn. Yeah. yeah, just think how how diminished our worship would be if we couldn't sing. 
a hymn like that. Think how diminished the worship here at Advent would be if the sanctuary was not so architecturally significant or the stained glass windows were not so arresting and alluring to us. Uh, they, they have that ability to just catch our attention. Think once again how diminished our worship would be if we didn't have poetry, if we didn't have great hymns. Well, art has come to help us to be able to praise God. And as I've also said, in that art can be a reflection of the purpose of creation, imitating nature. Can some way or another capture the orderliness and the beauty of creation and tell us the stories of what God has done for us. It also teaches us theologically what we should believe. Just as a sidebar to this, um, uh, I, I don't know if I've ever talked about this at a group here. I think maybe you and I have talked about this, Victor. I, I've been to Chartres Cathedral. Have you been to Chartres Cathedral? When we left there, we spent two full days just going around. We didn't see all the cathedral. I said, Beverly, when I die, I want you to be—I want you to be burying me in Chartres. <laughs> I want to be buried in Chartres Cathedral. It's one of the great buildings in the world. It's just south of Paris, about 40 miles. Um, we made a special trip in 2015 uh, to go to Chartres Cathedral. Uh, we spent uh, two nights, two and a half days there. Well, there are th they have magnificent stained glass windows. I mean, two stories high. The whole story of Christ is there. But they have lay uh, rows of stained glass windows, three of them. And as the sun moves across the sky, the shadows move across the building. You're kind of like caught up in a cloud or in the mystery of God. It has that power to do. But those stained glass windows start at the beginning and end at Revelation. You get the whole biblical story through those stained glass windows. You know, some people say that was done because in those days when those stained glass windows were used, most people couldn't read. Well, that's probably true. That's probably true. If I couldn't read, I could learn about the biblical story. Creation, David, Moses, all these people. But there's more to it than that. It's the power of art to teach us things that's unique, that comes with just the power of art. We know more by looking at those stained glass windows. And I can read pretty well. I didn't have to you know, look at those stained glass windows to know the story. But I learned something unique, and that's what, what art can do for us. And so... Uh, I do think, now I'm off on a limb in saying this, uh, that um, you know, we, we, or, we, it's fairly customary to sort of bemoan the decline of Christianity in the West. And that's true. Numbers are down. Clergy are down. In some ways, we are in some, a stressful time in the history of the church in the West. Now, that's not true elsewhere in the world, as you know. Uh, Christianity is exploding in Africa, exploding in parts of Asia and Latin America, the Christendom has moved out of the West, but we have this kind of stress that we're dealing with. How can we revive the church? And of course, there are a number of things that need to be there. I, I do think sort of theological, biblical, orthodoxy needs to be at the heart of that. But another way in which I think we can revive the church is by the power of its art, that it captures something that regular art is not able to do, and that is the story of redemption, not just of transcendence, but a revelation that Christian art has a way of communicating something that, frankly, we're not going to find in, in various sort of general, secular society. And so I think the church should always be committed to doing art as best as it can. 
as informed and as talented, as trained and as disciplined as it can, because it does something for us. It enables us to praise God, and it teaches us something about who God is. All right, what I want to do, and I'll do the same next Tuesday, uh, Tuesday Sunday, uh, is I, I'm going to look at some canvas art, I'm going to look at a poem, and I'm going to look at a building. Now, if I could sing, which I cannot, I'd give you a song. But uh, we're going to look at some canvas art here first. This is a famous Renaissance painting by a Frenchman named Nicolas Poussin uh, called The Annunciation. And obviously this has the religious symbol to it. As you can see, it's got an angel and also has the Holy Spirit in the symbol of a dove descending there. Now, of course... I, I'm quite sure it didn't occur that way. If we had a photograph, uh, we, we, we wouldn't have been able to photograph that particular image. But that's okay. It doesn't have to be. Here, what he is doing as an artist is, is pulling out, imitating nature, giving us a sense of purpose, intuition of the whole, telling us what was going on in that moment in which the enunciation of the birth of Emmanuel was given. And does it in a way in which this heavenly figure is communicating to her there, her eyes are closed. Now this is a Renaissance painting, and it, it, probably all of you have studied or at least appreciate something about Renaissance art. And one of the great features of Renaissance art is its, um, I guess you could say renewal, hence Renaissance, appreciation for the human experience. Human experience. The eye is a little above Mary there, just a little, not much, but a little. And so we are looking down just a touch. We're visualizing what was going on in her. Her eyes are shut. But what I want to draw attention to here is just the beauty of all this. The color, the shape, the health, the vivacity. That's not a word. Vivash. Can't find the right word. Liveliness of their experience. Yeah, vivacity. Maybe the uh, of what this is. And as a Renaissance artist, he does not see the wonder, the beauty, the health of the human experience to be contrary to the purposes and the revelation of God. They can meet. That as an artist, he found a way of depicting human beauty to communicate the purpose of the Annunciation, of being told that Emmanuel would come into the world. And here, it's a relishing of the human experience as a means to receive this announcement from the angel. And for that reason, it's not the only way to do that. Sometimes the human experience is dark, it's, 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 it's crippled, and there needs to be artistic ways to experience this. But we are part of the goodness of creation. We are part of the beauty of the world. And so in some way or another, the human experience has the power to capture or that's not the right word, to house is a better word, to house the annunciation of God through this angel. Um, uh, I, I do this at Sanford. It's a little tricky. Uh, I, I, I walk as though I'm, I'm on very thin ice when I do this. But I ask students to tell me the difference between pornography and a Matisse nude painting. You ever seen a Matisse nude painting? I actually have one. I bring it to class. Like I said, it's risky. Uh, uh, but I use it as a teaching lesson. What's the difference between a Matisse nude painting? Now, I don't bring pornography. 
I'm not that dumb. <laughs> I'm, I'm stupid, but I'm not that dumb. Uh, but what's the difference between a, a, a genuine artistic expression of the nude body versus pornography? Like, Sorry? All right. What does the artist do that Larry Flint, isn't that his name, the guy who did Hustler, yeah. does not in even attempt to do? Beauty versus uh, salaciousness versus... That's a good word, salacious. Um, pornography has a very definite end. It appeals to one thing. No great mystery about it, is there? And once you got it, it's over. You can go on to another one. But art, though, has that capacity. Some way or another, an artist has the genius to be able to capture that. That captures, as you say, beauty. Something that is not finished, incomplete. We cannot finalize it. We cannot exhaust its resources. And like a Matisse nude painting, uh, you can contemplate on that. There is no contemplation on pornography, though. You can contemplate because there's something wonderful about the human experience as he was able to depict it as a genuine genius to do so. Well, I think that's what this is. There's something, I mean, she's definitely female, robust, healthy, attractive. The angel is too. But it's not salacious, as you say. It's not appealing to a base instinct. It's appealing to wonder, to an amazement of the human experience that we can actually I mean, think about it. our faith, like the Apostle Creed, born of a woman. What a claim. What a claim that the human experience can have this kind of capacity to house the revelation of God. And so what he has captured here in this religious art, there, there are just you know, hundreds and hundreds of these sort of depictions of, of the birth of Christ, is that the birth of Christ was not contrary, antithetical, contradictory to human purpose. A woman could do it. Whoa, what a claim to make. That the world is not alien or strange or hostile to the presence of God. God has created the world in a way in which holiness can be experienced on the Sabbath day and holiness can be experienced in the birth that a woman has there. It's a remarkable story. What a claim to make. And art has a way of helping us make that claim. Uh, uh, Henry Tanner, an African-American painter, uh, he lived most of his life, professional life, and died in Paris, uh, did this one of the Annunciation. And I like it. There's no overt religious symbol to it, though. But it has an allure to it, doesn't it? It draws your eyes into the depth of the emotions that she's going through here. You know, she's looking out and it's, though there's not an angel there depicting what's being said to her. We, we don't have any image of something standing in front of her. But we know she is seeing and hearing something. Something is registered in her eyes. And that emotional depth that she's hearing it. I, I, frankly, I could stare at this one. I could the other one too. But this one, I keep thinking, I'm not finished looking at this one yet. Its emotional depth is very, very attractive to us. And it has a power to capture the significance of the Annunciation. I'm going to pick up the pace a little bit. Now, uh, I want to look at this poem here for just a second. John Donne, arguably one of the greatest Episcopal preachers of all time. <laughs> uh, he was, uh, if you know much about John Donne, what is it that you mostly know about John Donne, by the way? 
That's right. Meditation 17. No man is an island unto himself, but a part, but a piece of the continent. So never, never seek to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. What a, what a moving meditation it truly is. But he was a great preacher, and uh, I have his sermons, by the way, very literate. He's incredible. I mean, he was a poet before he became a preacher, and he was the um, the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral. And that's, in fact, if if you've been to St. Paul's, there is a statue to John Donne, very, very powerful poet. But I want to read this poem here. Poetry has a way, well, uh, poetry should be studied line by line, yes, but it should be heard in its entirety. That's what distinguishes it from prose. It has an artistic, aesthetic quality that is seen in its unity. So I'll try to do justice to this great poem. Immensity clustered in thy dear womb now leaves his well-beloved imprisonment. There he hath made himself to his intent weak enough now into the world to come. But oh, for thee, for him, hath the end no room, yet lay him in this stall and from the Orient. Stars and wise men will travel to prevent the effect of Herod's jealous general doom. Seest thou, my soul, with thy faith's eyes, how he which fills all place yet none holds him doth fly. Was not his pity towards thee wondrous high that would have need to be pitied by thee? Kiss him, and with him into Egypt go with his kind mother who partakes thy woe. Powerful. John Donne is uh, called by some, even though he never called himself this, this title was given to a group of poets called Metaphysical Poets. had sort of a technical uh, meaning to it. What it meant is that these poets, John Donne in particular, talked about individual sort of concrete things in very universal ways. That is, he tried to capture paradoxes and he was very good with it. And he wrote some secular poems as well. I mean, non-religious poems. But it was all based on this idea of the base of paradoxes within our experiences. But the Christian faith at the very heart is based on a paradox, a number of them. God, man. How paradoxical can you get? You know, dead, resurrected. How paradoxical can you get? And here a poem has that capacity to try to put in a single experience what we want to separate. Get God and humanity away from each other. Make them diametrically opposite. But we know in our faith they're not. They're not diametrically opposite. They are compatible because of the doctrine of the incarnation. And so this poem has this ability in word to express that paradox for instance, uh, immensely clustered in thy dear womb. What's clustered? Uh, uh, where is it? Uh, weak enough, but thou him he lay in the stall, stars and wise men effects, which all place, yeah, which fills all place, yet none holds him, doth lie. God is the creator of the world, but lies in the manger. Martin Luther once said this, that when the shepherds uh, went to the manger and looked over, they saw the creator of the world. That's what the Apostle John says, right? 
All things were made by the Word. The Word became flesh. They saw the creation. How do you capture such an experience? Art enables us to do that. Logic won't help. And, and I teach logic. I like logic. Logic is absolutely necessary. But logic is not going to help us grasp how such a paradox is true. Art has that kind of capacity to do so. Uh, this one didn't come out right. Uh, I, I apologize. I, I just couldn't get it. I couldn't find one that would uh, would come out with any kind of good resolution to it. And this is Botticelli, uh, early Renaissance, Mary with child. Uh, this has some overt religious symbols to it. These angels here, the symbol here. Uh, Mary and Christ here are also beautiful. They're healthy. And in those days, as you all know, health was a premium, but somehow or another... Uh, Bocciacini sees Mary not just a typical poor, desolate woman, but a woman of, of rare beauty as she sees as he sees her, and then Christ here as well. Now, uh, what do you think about her look? Do what? I think that's it. I think that's it. When we saw the Tanner painting at the Annunciation. There's that sense of mystical illumination in her eye. She's being addressed by God. But as we well know, uh, Mary was told at the very beginning that uh, suffering lay ahead for the birth of her son. And so this was his attempt to be able to capture the wonder of this experience, but also how it's conjoined with sorrow. Again, another basic paradox in our faith. That Christ came in the world, the Son of God, the creator of all things, who by his stripes all things would be healed. However, though, that Christ would suffer greatly, that Christ would be dealt unjustly. And Mary knew that. And so he was able to capture, I think, that one another basic paradox of our faith, that our joy is often experienced in sorrow. The great victory of God has to come through a cross, and that Mary senses that as well. And he does, I think, a very good job. And that's one of the reasons why I think this painting in particular uh, has such enduring uh, quality to it. Uh, I love this one. This is another one of my favorite ones here. And uh, though, there, I mean, we know it to be Mary and Jesus, uh, but if you didn't know anything about the scriptures, uh, you wouldn't see any overt religious symbols in there. No halos, no angels. Well, you're right, Victor, you're right. Uh, I stand corrected. Well, here, I'll just mark that one out and get to my point. <laughs> I'll erase it. Uh, but again, it's the material depth of this, the power of the emotions that's captured in this, the tremendous sense of intimacy and affection that Mary shows there. Look how, how tender she is. Uh, her eyes are closed. Uh, she's close to the child. Uh, and in some ways, there's a sense of of reverence even towards her child. Uh, I, you know, all of us have held babies. I've been fortunate enough to have two children and a granddaughter. And, and you hold a child and there is something unique, isn't it? There's something... Well, I cried every time. I, 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 when, we, when I first held Stephen and John, I just couldn't control myself. And, it, it, and I try not to be overly maudlin about things, but there's, there's, there's a power to it that children bring into us. And that is true. Um, I mean, I can get kind of overly sentimental talking about our, my children, but you know, I always thought I had a couple of pretty decent things in my life uh, before I became a father. Uh, 
and that if I became a father, that might help me even develop those things. Well, that's been a, that's been work, I have to admit. But my son and the grandchild, granddaughter, they've brought things into my life. They just didn't bring out the good things to me. You know, I think they bring things to us. That's true. Well, I think what he captures there, Crispy, is that ability that she has to experience that. She's being overwhelmed by what's sitting there, lying there in front of her. And of course, like what we saw in the previous painting, there's the foretelling of the cross, as Victor brought out here. And this art here, I think, has this art, artistic rendition, has that a power to be able to conjoin the incarnation with that very natural feeling of the wonder and joy of children. And again, aren't we amazed at this? That God has designed the world in a way in which God could be born of a woman. And that very natural feeling that we have as parents or friends or aunts or uncles or whatever of tender, innocent, loving children uh, can also be an ability to experience the incarnation of God. And he is capturing this. Uh, all right. I want to talk about architecture here. Anyone been there? To Bethlehem, the church and the nativity. Victor, when did you go, Victor? You probably told me, but I forget. 1980. Oh, oh, it was before West Bank. Uh, uh, I I was there in 2011. I had a sabbatical, and I spent that uh, uh, the the spring semester in in Jerusalem, just outside of Bethlehem, and we went over to the church and nativity a number of times. And it, it's difficult to do, by the way, because it's in the West Bank. And you have to go through a, a very taxing checkpoint to get in and out of the West Bank there. It's called Checkpoint 300. And it's, and it's designed after a cattle yard, by the way. You walk through all these turnstiles, and they can lock you up in it and so on. We had to show our passport every time we went into Bethlehem. We probably went into Bethlehem maybe six or seven times and went to the church nativity three times. Uh, uh, but... Uh, it, it, it is not a beautiful building. It is not. And I'd even say the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is not a beautiful building at all. Any been to... Okay. I would recommend that you go to Jerusalem someday. It, it is a most unusual experience. And really what makes it unusual is that we didn't design it. <laughs> if we designed it, it would all be too easy and too, you know, placid and too comfortable. There's something strained and stressful about Jerusalem, and the Church of the Nativity is that way as well. We went there in the uh, uh, last of January. It's cold, and we walked in, or hardly anyone was around. And uh, we walked in, and, and a man came up to us and said, you're, you're Westerners, Americans, he knew English, and he was a, uh, a Palestinian Christian, and he wanted us to show him around, and he, had, he was also sort of a tour guide, so we paid him to do so. And his name was Jesus, by the way. Oh, that same semester we went to Moses. I mean, oh, I just gave a line. We went to Sinai, and we had to have a guide to get to Mount Sinai. We rode a camel up, and, and his name was Moses. So we've been to Bethlehem, Church and Divinity of Jesus, and Mount Sinai with Moses. Right, be that as it may. Uh, but it, it had been built over various stages. Supposedly, Constantine uh, built started that building in around 325 or 326. Actually, that site was found by his mother, St. Helena, who was indeed a saintly person. She went around uh, to that part of Palestine trying to identify holy spots. 
And she did a lot of research to find that most tradition says this is where Jesus was buried, and there was a small sort of chapel built over where Jesus was buried. It's in a cave, and I'll show that in just a second. And uh, it was burned down, and various other sort of buildings, uh, sort of at various times and places, almost like modern hospital. You know, mod- except in the Grandview, all hospitals are just about 40 different buildings attached to the same plan. Well, this is the same way. And, and you go in there and you think, what am I looking at? I, I know this is significant, but I'm not for sure what this is right here. Now, uh, this building right here is called St. Catherine's. It's, it's, just, it's not part of the main church. It's off to the side. And uh, it is a Roman Catholic sanctuary. If you were to get on the television Christmas Eve and find somewhere or another... Uh, the mass that is held there at the church in the nativity, it will be in that sanctuary, St. Catherine's. It's not part of the original nativity. This is, though, that, this is the basilica. And this is run by the Greek Orthodox Church. No Roman Catholic can do worship in there, and no Orthodox can do worship in there. This is one of the oddities of Jerusalem, by the way. Things are so divided up. You go to the Holy Sepulcher, the, the, the empty tomb is run by the Greek Orthodox Church. The Golgotha is run by the Franciscans, the Roman Catholic Church. All these other groups there have little portions of the Holy Sepulcher. It's divided up. In some ways, it's uncomfortable and it's, it's messy. Now, that's not a really astute term, but it is. It's, just doesn't, it's not laid out in any kind of nice floor plan. There's not a, a sort of sequential order to things. However, though, and this supposedly is the place where Jesus was born. It's down in. You've got to go down these stairs. It's not very welcoming. It's difficult to do. You've got to lean over in there and look down in there. That was he born. Well, the reason why I'm emphasizing this is that this is an architectural accomplishment that needs to stay messy, that needs to stay complicated doesn't need to be neat and clean and pure and geometrical. Why is that? Because God entered a fallen world. A, a, a world that had been corrupted by sin and greed and violence. And oftentimes when we were there, there'd be guards outside. That we live in a hostile world. But even within the sort of the, 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 the parameters, the design of, of conflict, of, of hostility, we can find an artistic rendition of experiencing God in a fallen world. And now again, I'm, I'm, uh, and next week I am going to talk about some really, really, you know, success, you know very, very overwhelmingly powerful uh, uh, architectural accomplishments. But one thing I like about the Church and the Nativity is that it has its own unique way of capturing, just like what those paintings did. How did God become part of the world? or has uh, Dunn did in his great poem, how do you express a paradox? And this architectural feel that you have when you go to the church and the nativity is that even in the midst of this confusion, this awkwardness, this indecisiveness, this, this conflict, this sort of suspicion of what's going on, the sense of divisions that go on, God is even in the presence of that. And so I hope they never raise that building and build it brand new. I hope they never demolish it, saying, hey, we got a really nice plan, and we got some, you know, American architects, they're going to fix this building up. No, 
I like the fact that it's not fixable, <laughs> that it's complicated. Because God has entered a world that is very complicated, and we can't fix it. And this is an architectural way, I think, to express that. And we should relish in that experience. Okay, when I come back next Sunday, I'll do the same. Some paintings, a poem, and a building to talk about. We have just a minute here before I need to close. Anybody have a question or a comment? I don't know. I don't know who designed that. Is there electric lighting down there? Yeah, there is. There's electric lighting. Yep. You know, I think the most encouraging thing about what you said, we were reading an email from Lore talking about in Christ the Creator is creating each one of us to be an artwork. And, you know, we look within ourselves and we go, how is that possible? Because it is so messy. Right. And it's corrupt and it's all these things. And yet, you did a good job. Just we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Yeah. I think that's one of the most profound things that's said in the New Testament. We have the capacity to experience the holiness of God without having to become holy to do it. That's the wonder of the Christian message. And art has a way of capturing that in a very unique way. All right, I'll say a concluding prayer. Our gracious Lord, the maker of heaven and earth, our Lord and Savior incarnate there in Bethlehem, we are so grateful for thy presence among us. Help us, O Lord, to be faithful in our praise and obedient in our actions. And this I pray in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Thank you very much. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.